anything that feels like change challenges the ego and the ego wants to keep the status quo and keep us safe. You know, it's, its intention is good, but it's so bloody destructive. It doesn't help us. We don't need it. Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. Man, I have been wanting to have this conversation with you for a while now. As we are, as I've been saying, kind of shakily emerging, unsteadily emerging from this pandemic, there's a lot that's changing, especially as it relates to leadership and corporate culture. And you all know that I've been waving this banner about, you know, a call for rebel leadership in a post-pandemic world and how we really have to change how we think about all these things, how we be the change that we want to see going forward. And I know that you are all equally as passionate. And that's why I wanted to bring on Vicki Shillington. My guest today is not only a dear friend of mine, a soul sister, she is an expert in the leadership space, in the organizational development space. Basically, Vicki is the woman you call when you want help transforming the culture of your organization. Feels like the right person to be talking to right now, huh? As we're all in the midst of what I know a lot of the media is calling the great resignation, as so many of us, and so I'm sure a lot of people on our teams and in our organizations are rethinking everything as a result of the pandemic, are getting clear on what their non-negotiables are. And one thing, one headline that I've seen is got a lot of people who are fed up with their careers. The turnover is high. And 56% of employees in the US alone started a new job search this past year. So we know leadership has to change. We have to, we're already thinking about what does that look like from the inside out? And how do we start to create thriving cultures that people want to work within? So Vicki is, she's our person. Vicki brings such a unique blend. She has a background of over 20 years in this work layered with this beautiful blend of business and spirituality. She sees everything through a positive psychology lens where she can guide organizations and teams and individual leaders to grow and succeed and thrive. She has a background of having worked for some of the biggest consulting firms in the world and all over the world, from Deloitte Consulting to Arthur Anderson to IBM and some really incredible and badass clients as a part of all of that work. 
And she's now a part of ThinkShift, a boutique consultancy where she's working on leadership and what it means to be a fabulous leader, what it means to create and the recipe for creating thriving organizations and how we can really show up to be seen as leaders in order to have the impact that we want to have. And Vicky is, she's so special to me for so many reasons, not the least of which because she came into this conversation ready to be so raw and so vulnerable and share her own journey of being seen, her own journey as a leader and as a human and as somebody who's really embraced the principles of living soulbatical. And we talk about what that's meant and how she's been shifting her life and how she is really creating her life in a way that's felt super edgy. And I think is so cool for all of us to hear. And this is, it's a conversation close to my heart. I know that this is something that is on all of your hearts as well, which is why I wanted to drop this sooner than later. There is some really good practical advice. So you are getting thousands of dollars of Mickey's time for free and really great advice on your own leadership journey and on how you can bring this recipe for creating a thriving organization into your own company, into your own culture. And it felt like right now is the absolute right time to be doing this. So please sit down, walk, dig in, be present. There's so much goodness in here. And please let us know what you think. Let's dive into the conversation. Enjoy. Uh, My dear soul sister, it's so good to be in your presence. I wish you and I could be sitting at a cafe in LA and I could give you a big squeeze right now, but I'm just, I'm so honored and I always love spending time with you. Thank you for joining me. Mm. Uh, That really landed and I feel the same way. What a gift to be with you today, my dear. And and every time I speak to you or see you, I'm just like, why can't we be closer together? (laughs) Well, you... You know, and now the Rebel Souls community knows this is one of the probably top three reasons why I love spending time in LA. Vicky has been, we've been on this journey together for a couple of years now, and you have been such a bright light and inspiration for me because we are so different in so many ways. And yet, we have been, I just, I consider you one of my role models. I consider you somebody who is helping me become an even more powerful rebel soul force, but not rebelling, you know, against things. You remind me every day what I'm rebelling for. Mm -hmm. And One of the reasons I, so many reasons I wanted to have you uh, here for this conversation. I know from the first day that I met you in Santa Fe, in our coaching community that I used to be a part of, that you would not identify as a rebel soul. Is Mm -hmm. that right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, 
I was doing CrossFit for a while. I've stopped doing it. But one of the coaches uh, said to me, is it your husband that doesn't think of you as a badass? Like, what is it? And I was like, I don't think of myself as a badass. You know, that doesn't resonate with me at all. <laughs> How would you yeah. describe yourself? How would you? Because I, I, so my, you know, ulterior motive here is to r- remind all of us that we have a rebel soul right? Rebel soul is all about rebelling for who we are, what we want, and the impact we want to have in the world. And you are one of the people who I see doing all of those, like the evolution I've seen on your personal journey, let alone your professional journey in the couple of years that I've known you, is the most radical. I feel like you have awoken, whatever the right word is, awaken, awoken, this total badass, this total rebel soul in coming home to yourself. Yeah, and 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 that resonates. You know, I think of it more as a soft, gentle evolution um, as opposed to a big, forceful uh, rebelling. So I have a slightly different interpretation. For me, it's gentle, it's soft, it's it's uh, um, a very natural evolution to the homecoming. But I also don't mess around. So as soon as I hear something that is a truth to me, I'm on it. Uh, even if my um, spirit is like, oh, that's a bit odd. Or my, actually, it's not my spirit, it's my ego, you know, feeling a little challenged with it. Like you and I both been on our color journeys with Jenna, the gorgeous Jennifer Butler. And it took me three weeks of looking at the old and looking at the new and looking at the old and for my ego to really let go. But then it's it's done. You know, like those things aren't vibrating for me anymore. Move on. So I tend to move on pretty quickly once I've heard something that that is my truth. I don't mess around. And this is something that you are constantly, you know, reflecting back to me and shining a light on because I think my rebel is sometimes my ego and it has and continues to get in my way, but I'm so much more aware of it now. So let's talk about this. I love how you said that soft, gentle evolution. Before we talk about what you're rebelling for in the world, I want, I want everyone in this community community to understand what I've witnessed and what you've experienced. So the Vicky that walked into a room in Santa Fe a couple of years ago, or maybe even more than that, probably like two and a half years ago, right? Yeah. Was you know, the the hard-nosed Londoner showed up in all black, you know, things worked <laughs> a certain way. And, you know, and it, you were a force and yet we couldn't see you. And I look at you now. And honestly, when you sent through your profile pic that will be splashed all over the place with this episode... I sat and stared at it and reflected and I just wrote down, this says it all. This is the Vicky I know today. The Vicky who's like wild and expressive and vibrant and I will never see her in black again because that's not her truth. Talk to us a little bit about that journey because to me, it sets the stage for everything you've accomplished since then. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and before I do that, you know, you were touching on the ego and I'm currently doing a master's in spiritual psychology. Mm. And what's fascinating about this is um, 
you know, our ego has patterns of operating to keep us safe, certainly for when we were living in tribes 50,000 years ago. And one of the patterns of keeping us safe is, is control, is doing things in a different way to keep us safe and secure. And so I love that you're becoming more and more aware of your ego because it doesn't actually serve us. It did once upon a time, yeah. but right now it's everything that holds us back, but it's going to fight for its life. Anything that makes it want to shut up and be quiet, it's going to rebel. And I had this experience at my last spiritual psychology class where I did not want to turn up. It was a Saturday. Uh, I'd had a busy week. Usually I'm super jazzed to get into it. And this Saturday, I wanted to sit on the sofa and watch Netflix. And, <laughs> and I turned up and turned out a bunch of people felt the same way. And I'm figuring it's probably because we're about five months into the program that something in the ego is like, no, you're dismantling me step by step. I don't like it. I'm holding on for dear life. And I'm going to kick and scream and bring you back to everything I can to self-sabotage. And it's just a good reminder. It's just noise. It's not, it's not who we are. Uh, it's like a, a little child that we just need to be like, it's okay. You've served me. I don't need you anymore. Mm. So, you know, that, that just struck me as you're talking about the ego is that it has been helpful at some point, but the need to be in control, the need to feel safe and secure, it's just an ego pattern. We are always being held by the divine. We don't need to be in control. We don't need to take responsibility. It's all there for us. We just need to relax into it and know that it's okay. Yeah. And can I just reflect back to you one more time? What I think is so powerful about how you show up in the world is that you can move effortlessly and with, with ease and so much grace between this world of spirituality, which I know is hugely important to you. And I'm learning a lot from you in that space. And the business world, the hard-nosed business world. And you are helping people see the beautiful union of where we can go when we think about the relationship of spirituality and business and energy and playing bigger and setting our egos aside, all the things you just said. We'll get to it because I want to talk about how that plays out in the work that you do inside companies with leaders <laughs> and, and yeah. how they're showing up. But thank you for starting us there because to know Vicky is to know that these two things live so harmoniously and that they can. And I'm so glad you said that because, you know, that is my truth and I'm becoming brave and braver in this in this world of what I'm actually here to do on the planet. And it is the intersection of those things. I love the two equally. And um, I was in Miami a month ago working with a group of the rising stars, the future leaders of this high growth organization. It's achieved $1 billion in seven years, high growth. It's unbelievable. And they, they are investing in their next set of leaders. You know, what a gift. And I spent three days with them in our um, fabulous leader shifter and as I was teaching them the success habits of a superstar performer and then to an awesome manager and then a top-notch exec and then a fabulous leader, on the second day, it's a tough day where I kind of break them and we're kind of diving into how we never listen. 90% um, of the time we're in downloading and looking for facts that confirm what we believe. 5% 
of the time, um, we are in fact you're listening, where we're listening for something that disproves what we believe. Hmm. Empathetic listening is when I'm really prepared to understand your beliefs and why you believe what you believe so that I can relate to you and help you. And then generative listening, where we spend one or two percent if we're lucky, is really intuitive listening and listening to our soul. And as we went down into that space, they started questioning me and taking me off in this completely different direction. And I started to talk to them about how we are these, these divine beings and we're having a, using this human experience for our growth and evolution. And um, the triggers are our gifts because if we weren't triggered, everything would be healed inside us. So see it as a gift because it's pointing to something unresolved because otherwise it would slide off us of Teflon. And Shelly, we went off in this direction for about three hours and they were mesmerized. And there was 10 of them, boys, girls, I mean, you name it. And um, they're the high flyers in the organization. And eventually we needed a break because we were just going at it. And they're like, can we spend the next day and a half as we wrap up just focusing on this? And I was like, I would love to, but I'm here to teach you now about priorities and stakeholders and everything else that's going to make you so successful as an executive and your powers as leaders, personal power, where you lead from who you are, not what you know, or what you stand for. I need to teach you these things because if you don't have these, then as much as you know your spiritual truth, you still trip over the, the ins and outs of corporate life. Um, but it was so reassuring to be able to weave them in so naturally and see such receptivity and feel so me. Because up until now, I've always been like, somebody asked me about this. I'm going to just duck and dive and send them a link to a book because I can't really talk about this. It's too edgy because, you know, what are they going to think? And, um, you know, I grew up with very, very uh, deep and beautiful and, and uh, spiritual truths and always loved and known them to be the truth, but find it hard to talk about with people because it's not the, certainly in my experience, the common way of talking about things and that we are these divine beings. And it's gorgeous that this world is now, certainly a part of it is opening up to being willing and, and understanding that this awakening is here for us. Yes. And I, first of all, I want to celebrate you because I know how edgy that is. Thank you for being what I love to call, you know, a soul model, showing us how it's done. In reality, like following our truth is not always easy. Sometimes it is the hardest thing to do. And for you to lean into that in a group of high potential executives in a corporate setting, that inspires me. And I want to remind everyone in this community who's listening right now thinking, yeah, but I have to leave that piece of me behind me. Maybe it's your spirituality. Maybe it's, you know, Scott Shute, who we had on the, the, um, on this podcast, he is the head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn. And for the longest time in his multi-decade career, he thought like mindfulness was the thing he was never going to talk about in his high-powered executive role. You're showing us about spirituality. Both of you have found ways to beautifully integrate. And I want all of us to take a lesson that I think we are most powerful as leaders when we bring our whole selves 
to the table, when we bring our whole selves to the boardroom and the conversation. And I think we're often surprised about the magic that happens when we do. You just described a perfect example of that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I love that. So let's take a big step back. I still, I want to give our community a a sense for this journey. So what led you to that moment in Miami with these high potentials where you were brave enough and felt so in alignment with yourself that you're like, yeah, I'm going to step into that and blow people's minds in the process, right? So the Vicky I saw in Santa Fe, who was still buttoned up quite literally, right? Buttoned up in the, you know, in the black, very reserved, sat in a circle. I hope you don't mind me saying this because everybody knows I love the F-bomb on this program, but was, I mean, people like me who were just dropping the F-bombs left, right, and center were making you very uncomfortable. (laughs) And here we are, and I'm not asking you to embrace, you know, profanity and all the things that, you know, fire my rebel soul up. That's the part of one of our differences that we love and we support each other in. But talk to me about this journey of coming home for you. And then let's talk about how you're bringing it more deeply into the corporate space. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 it starts when I was a little girl and living in Johannesburg in South Africa. And we used to go to the central business district, CBD, from time to time. And I'd see the skyscrapers and the office workers and something inside me lit up. I was like, I, I just know I want to be in business. I don't know what they do, but it looks so exciting to me. It's and sexy. I know, <laughs> and I know for a lot of people, they're like, what? Crazy girl. But, you know, I've got there's game parks and safaris going on in Africa. And the thing that excites me is, is, is skyscrapers, but it did. And, um, you know, my first gig at IBM, I, uh, I started to realize how dysfunctional organizations are, even ones that work really, really well. The inequity in pay, the inequity in how people are treated, managers just doing the best they know how to do, but not really knowing that it's a completely different job to get something out of somebody else. And there's tools that you can learn and mindset shifts in order not just to keep doing the thing you always did. And so um, as I moved through my journey in London, um, I helped build a boutique management consultancy with my business partner, Bips, and some others. And we really figured out the recipe of creating a place where people love to work. And it became so addictive to me that you can hire the right people. You can give them tons of feedback. You can help them with the shifts as they go through different parts of their careers so that they know what's expected from a mindset perspective and they don't stay too long in what I lovingly call the circle of suck, but they can actually get out the other side of all of this. And um, which took me to LA. And um, when I met you in Santa Fe, I definitely had that sort of combination of the, the London corporate business chic, but, you know, the black, the, the, the winter colors, the, the, some of the softer summer colors, but not who I am as a golden spring. And um, I was going to spring, by the way, is one of Jennifer Butler's terms. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about her and for sure put a link to her work in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and I I would embrace the summer colors as I was getting more to the SoCal vibe and the, you know, the plaid shirts. And I was trying to do a bit of both, but not really knowing who I actually was. 
And I ended up listening to Rich Litvin's Prosperous Coach book and something in his messaging really connected with where I was at the time. I'd moved from working for large consultancies to working for clients and then partnering up with VIPs. And we built up ThinkShip to really shift the mindset of, of leaders. And we have these three-day catalyst events, which wakes them up in a big way. They get smacked across their head and then they're ready for coaching. <laughs> and they've been taught the tools, they've been smacked and they, they are open and they're ready for coaching. And so um, I was evolving more and more into that. And his work really spoke to me as as he talks about creating a prosperous business. And so I wanted to be part of his community of interesting souls. His philosophy is if you're the most interesting person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I was like, that sounds great. So I first time I met him was in Santa Fe with you and some of the others. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely not the most interesting person in the room here. This is awesome. And I thought, you know, it's a lot of money for this program. Most I'd ever spent on myself. You know, at that point, I was still living in scarcity consciousness and not really wanting to spend money on myself and rather save and invest. And But the freedom of writing that huge check was so liberating. It was like a shackle had been taken off me. It's like, I can spend this money and I can create more money. Money's just a reflection of the creativity I put out into the universe. And um, I was like, but, you know, for this money, I'm going to own myself during this weekend and not do the Vicky thing and be quiet and watch and observe and get comfortable. I'm going to own my truth. And so the moment you're talking about, it's not that it's not that F-bombs bother me. I don't at all get affected by them. I just don't feel that they're necessary. And so I was surprised. And so the moment Shelley's talking about was we'd had this great initial evening together in an art gallery in Santa Fe and just this amazing evening getting to know each other and being vulnerable. And the next morning we were sitting in a circle um, telling our truths. And I was like, you know, I'm quite surprised. This group is really elegant <laughs> and there's so much profanity. <laughs> and um, it was surprising to me. It just wasn't what I was expecting because, you know, in my belief, not right or wrong, it, it just doesn't add anything. Now I'm learning that in certain situations it does, you know, I'm open to that. Um, but it was super interesting because, which then asked me what I wanted. And I was literally making a comment and I was put on the spot to say, what do I want? And that was edgy. Cause I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a happy go lucky kind of gal. I can fit in in most situations. I don't have very strong needs. Well, I certainly didn't know that I had strong needs. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say exclamation point, exclamation point. Yes. <laughs> I certainly didn't know I had strong needs. And <laughs> Uh, how wrong I was. And so it was, well, I don't really care if they swear or don't swear. I'm just commenting. It's, it's, it's unusual to me. And he wouldn't let me off the hook. And he's like, what do you want? So I was like, okay, if I have to be honest, I'd rather it didn't happen. And he said, okay, well, we'll ask them. And that was the first awakening for me because in my mind, I thought I had. And he's like, no, you've just made a suggestion. You haven't asked them. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, group, will you please not swear? And he's like, you're not done yet. I'm like, what? And now I'm, I'm on the spot in front of people I do not know, super impressive individuals. Um, and um, he's like, ask them to put up their hands if they agree with you. <laughs> and their hands went up. <laughs> uh-huh. And I learned so many lessons in that moment. Of, oh, gosh, my language is very suggestive. It's not actually direct in terms of my needs and what I want. And, and then... Um, 
it was super fun just experiencing that. I didn't feel uncomfortable other than being on the spot. You know, it was more the, I don't want to being on the spot in front of a big group, although I'm getting more comfortable with that, knowing the history of why we experienced that, having lived in tribes and not wanting to get, get that now. But the next piece was uh, we did this exercise where we were in a circle and each person went into the middle and the group would describe the persona there that they experienced. Most of us didn't really know each other. So it was, uh, you know, what energy are you putting out there when we first see you? And and as you're walking around, it's super edgy because now you have 40 eyes on you, 20 people, 40 eyes, and you are being seen. And it was terrifying. I just wanted the world to... It's excruciating having yeah. experienced that as well. Yes. I just wanted the world to swallow me up. It was so terrifying. But, you know, and, and there were things like, well, she's so pretty and she looks so good, but we can't really see her. Who is she? Is she in a cage? And so the phraseology that I, they came up with for me, the persona name was Porcelain Doll. And um, it was beautiful. You know, it was a perfect reflection of that. And it, it really landed when they said that because I'm like, I don't want, it landed because I'm like, I don't want to be a Porcelain Doll. I can't impact these organizations if I'm not really seen. You know, I'll have a small impact, but these organizations need what I know now and what I'm here to do. And how, how am I going to do that if I'm in a glass, in a glass casing and I'm a porcelain doll. And then... And that's sort of, there's a fragility there too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I want to take care of you, fragile. Um, And then after that, Christopher Maher, um, one of our spiritual healers and former Navy SEAL who I've done work with since then, you know, he came and sat with me and he said, the first thing if you really want to be seen is to get into your covers. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, I know my mom did the in the 1980s at the, you know, the, the Dulax color wheel, which didn't appeal to me. Um, and he said, look at me. And he said, look at what I'm wearing. Look at the texture. Look at the design. Look at the, the what I'm wearing. And he showed me his palette. And it had texture and it had richness and it had variety. And I was like, oh, that's nothing like the color wheel of the 80s. I mean, it's grounded in that, but there's nothing like that. I'm like, what is this? You're seeing Jennifer Butler. <laughs> she will open your mind. And so... <laughs> Um, that started that journey of, of reaching out to her and hurting my color palette. And then I went shopping with her and, and she had this boutique at her house. And I took Jim along, my husband, and I said, you know, come with me because I'm going into this world in Hollywood. I don't know what I'm getting into. Come with me to make sure I don't do anything crazy because I could get super sucked into something that I end up with stuff. I'm like, what the hell is this? And we walk in and there's a summer with her muted tones, dressed head to toe in all her colors and her textures. And we were both like, our drawers dropped. We were like, who is this? What is this? And then she took them off and she tried on something else. And she was just a very ordinary looking girl. And that stopped both of us in our tracks. We were like, okay, this is magical. There's something here. There's something really magical. And she's her in whatever her look is and so grounded. And so he sat on the sofa and they were trying on all these things on me. And the, the promo shot that you're going to post was one of the first pieces I bought. And I'd put it on and the whole room of ladies would go, <gasps> and I'd be like, oh, no, oh, no. I don't even know what this is. It's all flouncy at the bottom. It's got all these colors. It's as far away from who I am. But as I say, you know, my soul is like, once I know, even if my ego is fighting, I lean into it. So I bought this thing and I was like, God, I'm in LA. There must be somewhere I can wear this thing at some point. I don't know. So the very first time I wore it was um, 
when I graduated from my master's in positive psychology in London and I was my graduation, I was like, and so that's the picture you're seeing was me at my graduation um, in the hall before we going on, on stage. And, um, and it was, it, it, I love that picture because I was just felt so me and so happy having achieved something magnificent and wearing what I thought was the edgiest thing ever when actually it's just me. Yeah, it is. And not just you, it's you. Take the just out of yeah, it. It's me. How powerful it is you. And here's here's another observation from somebody who knows you, loves you, and and like falls in love with you every time more and more, every time we have a conversation and you're revealing the, you know, the deeper truth of yourself. What I find so interesting is that when I met you in that circle at in Santa Fe. And you described yourself as chief happiness officer that was and is your title. And I was blown away. I'm like, I'm the chief soul officer and you're the chief happiness <laughs> officer. And those are the two coolest effing titles that have ever existed on the planet. And yet I didn't see your happiness from the inside out radiating in the way that I do today. Today, I look at you now. I look at you when we get to be in person in LA together. I look at you in this photo, in the crazy jacket that you bought that I now look at and go, everyone needs like a version of that in their colors. And I go, yeah, of course she's chief happiness officer because she's a chief happiness officer inside first. And then you exude that in the way you're showing up in the world. And that's really important to me because you are living the way I always preach and I try my best to do when I'm, you know, trying to do a little bit better every day. But is that how you feel? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I've always felt like that, but now it feels more authentic. So I can look back and see that I didn't feel like that then. I felt like I did then. But as I look back on it, I realize how far the shift has happened because yeah. it's not knowing what you don't know. You know, you feel it's like you're in a frog in water. You feel like you feel great. But when you're taken out of that situation, you're like, oh, I feel even better. That was great. But now there's a whole nother level of, of great. And, and, you know, a lot of that has to do with the work I did with uh, Chris, Christopher Maher and um, his true body work where he he really gets into your body and strips away a lot of the, the tension and distortion um, that frees up your energy to be able to be who you be. And it was actually um, the second time we were in Santa Fe a year later for another reunion. And I'd been on such a great journey over that year, but I found at the end of that weekend, after three days of all that intensity, was that the um I was still going for the sugar you know I was like I need I was staying in a, a special wing in this hotel for whatever reason and they had all this like free sugar brownies and cakes and whatever and I come back at the end of the day and I just be like oh, I'll just have a little something and the next thing I'm you know stuffing my face with it and I called him afterwards and I said you know I don't know what it is but I'm realizing now what a hold sugar has on me and I'm realizing when I'm out of my comfort zone and there's too much intensity for what I can take in that um, it's when I go to sugar and I'm noticing that now. I didn't, again, you don't know what you don't know. You just think it's normal. And then you get out of it. And you're like, oh, holy crap. I was in that. 
and I could see it because I was mostly able to to not be um, needing sugar. But then when I was in a, a, a situation that was too intense for my nervous system, I'd need sugar. So I was like, okay, there's a correlation here. What's going on? And so he did more work and um, went back to a childhood event where um, we didn't have, you know, a lot of money growing up. We were, we were great. We, you know, we had everything we needed, but there wasn't a huge amount left over. And, and my parents left us to be healthy. And so chocolates and sweets weren't something we had access to. But a little friend of mine, um, Glenda Oliver, her, her mom always had this cupboard full of chocolates and different kinds of candies and sweets. And, and whenever I'd go over, I would just eat as many as I could. And there was one time when I came home, uh, when I went to her house, her mom came home and said to me, would you please not eat all our, our chocolates and sweets? And as a little seven-year-old, you know, just the shame and the guilt and embarrassment that you take on. And, you know, I think that was part of the, the feeling of needing the sugar, but then um, because I wasn't emotionally getting what I needed and then feeling the guilt and the shame because I shouldn't be eating it and, and all of that. So, so he dismantled all of that. And combination of that and then being really conscious of what happened in Santa Fe, I now am so cautious of my truth and my inner honesty of knowing what's going on inside me. And then my outer honesty, exploring it with others. Like, Hey, like if I do three day events now, I don't go out in the evenings as much as I FOMA, I'm like, I can't, you know, I need to take care of me because these events are taking so much out of me uh, on my own and knowing that and just being okay with FOMA and anything else I might miss. And I'm so good at that now because I know the impact. I know the impact on my body that I was masking my version of the daily drugs, which happens to be each today. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you're modeling beautiful boundaries and it's hard. I mean, especially I'm an Enneagram seven, so it's like constant FOMO. I'm also an introvert. So I'm really practicing JOMO over, over FOMO, but you're right. I mean, when we get in overwhelm, when our nervous systems get stressed, you know, when we're feeling some sort of void of not enoughness in some way inside, we go, we, we go to our go-to. It was sugar yeah. for you. It was yeah. wine for me. You commented when we first got on camera before we started recording, you asked me if I was still on my alcohol-free journey. And I very proudly said, hell yes. Yippee! Five so months in. Yippee so is yeah. right. Thank you. Thank you. And I've 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 experienced a lot of, you know, what what you're talking about too. And this is an evolution. So, you know, for you know, fellow rebel souls, as you listen to this, one of the reasons, you know, Vicky, I love that you're laying this out step by step because none, none of this happened. It wasn't like an epiphany all at once. It was layer by layer, step by step. And you are still on this journey. That oh, Miami yeah. story, right? So let's, let's take us to present. You are showing up in your wild, you know, summer colors. You are showing up in all of your truth on every level. You are radiating happiness. You are wearing your colors so we can see you and experience you. And you're now no longer trying to compartmentalize things like spirituality that are hugely important to you. You're bringing that into your work. So talk to us about some of those, like, first of all, 
let's talk to us about some of those moments of like when you showed up in all of your colors, you looked wildly different than the woman who used to wear the black suit or the monochromatic, you know, dark Navy outfit, the buttoned up blouses, all of that. What was that? What was that like? Because I know that the reaction was quite different than what you expected, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, before I go there, there was there's one other story that I think will be helpful to your listeners um, that I thought of as you were talking. Yeah. Um, you know, once I once I got the other side of sugar, I found the spaciousness inside of me. And I said to Christopher, you know, I think I'm ready now to have a conversation with my my sister. So my sister's a year younger than me. And um, we'd never really been close. I mean, we were close in age. My mom was an only child, so she was desperate for us to be like super close. So we literally almost to the day were, you know, a year apart. But we really weren't. We're pretty much indifferent to each other. And because I now had the spaciousness inside of me, I knew what, what had happened. I could remember the event. And... It was when I was seven and she was six and my dad had asked if I would take her to a birthday party of a friend of mine. And at that point, you know, I was buying into my, my parents and, and the seven generations before uh, philosophies of whatever we're here to solve on this planet. And ours was definitely scarcity, consciousness, money, love, you name it. And um, at that point, I was buying into love, scarcity, consciousness, because I had all these crazy little curls and she had this beautiful straight blonde hair. And I was like, well, if I take her along, she's way cuter. She's got these beautiful blue eyes. I've got boring brown eyes. You know, they're going to love her. And there's not going to be enough for both of us. So from that moment, I kept her in arm's distance. And I'm realizing this. So as I'm realizing this and I'm thinking about the conversation I need to have with her, and I do this for my clients all the time, but I couldn't find the words because of the 40 years of being one way. <laughs> So he gave me the words and I called her up and I was like, hey, you know, I'm realizing what happened. I want to take responsibility for our relationship not being as close as it could be. And I'm realizing what happened. And I told her that story of when we were little. Uh, and then her reply just broke my little heart. She said, you know, I, I thought you didn't love me. Oh. oh, you know, so can you imagine, you know, little big sister hearing that the little sister, we both lived the story for all this time because of whatever we've made up. And I kept her at arm's distance and she thought I didn't love her. And neither stories were true. And, um, oh, you know, and then she went through a, a pretty shitty breakup. And because of that, she reached out and she and me and my dad took every Sunday and we've helped her through it. But that would never have happened otherwise. And it's just a result of this work and the spaciousness of getting away from the daily drugs so that, I could see what needed to be healed and then have the courage to own it. Um, and same thing with my stepmom. Um, you know, ever since my mom died, I just kept her at arm's distance. It was almost like she doesn't exist because then I would have to, I'd have to admit that my mom had died and she's in South Africa. So in my mind, she's in South Africa. You know, I have never really admitted that she's, she's died. So I wasn't very friendly towards, um, towards Anthea either. And so I could call her up and say, look, it's not you. It's my story. I haven't been able to own this. And I, I, I want to move on from this. And like, if you told me a couple of years ago, I would even know what these things were, let alone how to tackle them or the courage, I would have told you, you were nuts. Uh, but now, and that's through my spiritual psychology, every month we meet little something heals like that. We're like, oh, I see that now. 
But what I realized with the daily drugs is they mask that and you don't get to see it or know it because you're numb. You don't get to feel the feels, whereas now I can feel everything that's happening to me and be like, oh, something's off. What is it? Why am I feeling like this with this client or this? Okay, what do I need to own here? What do I need to heal there? Yeah. What a you gift to be through it. It's an absolute gift because we can see it, experience yeah. it, feel it, own it, and move through it. And yeah. the numbness keeps us stuck in it most yeah. of the time, right? Yeah. And it's That's certainly where my wine was was um, absolutely keeping me. Absolutely, we all have it. You know, it could be busyness, it could be distraction. We all have our version of it, but <laughs> it's not allowing us to own what's really going on with us and what we just truly desire, which is what we're here to do. Yes. And yeah, there's still a huge journey to go. You know, I still have the ego chiming in and fighting when I'm you know dealing with family, and I'm like, but I know it's my ego now. I know it's not who I am or who they are. I, I know that we're all these divine beings and we just love each other and we're here to heal each other. It's just the ego shouting. And it's it's lovely to know that, even though I might not be able to move through it all just yet. I'm also patient and compassionate, though it'll happen when it needs to happen. And I want to celebrate having those vulnerable conversations because it's not easy to have had that conversation with your sister, your stepmother, you know, these conversations you're having with leaders today. It requires a huge amount of vulnerability on your part. That's also the way we move through this, right? Yeah. And I think vulnerability, I'm curious if you if you teach this and how this factors into the work that you do. Uh, with leaders, like how do you talk about vulnerability? It feels so, I mean, I'm a student of Brene Brown, right? Like yeah, vulnerability yeah. is courage and it is daring leadership. So how do you think about it and how do you help leaders to embrace it? When it yeah. feels scary as shit. I knew I grew up in all of those steel towers that you described. It was sexy and polished and all the things, but we were armored up, yeah. armored up. Yeah. Yeah. So I take them through a journey and the three-day event is the start of the journey where they have to understand the different success habits of the different stages and really understand the dips and the circles of suck they go through. Because that gives them a mental model of what really is leadership and what are the qualities that make you a fabulous leader. Um, How would you describe that? How would you describe the qualities if you had to give us the top three? Well, the top four are success habits of a fabulous leader, and this is somebody who leads through personal power. It's what they believe in and what they stand for, not their title or their domain knowledge, is they have to be a great communicator um, and be able to create an enduring, motivating purpose that people follow. Um, they have to create the system and environment that enables others to act, meaning um, the process, the technology, the people, so that if they're out of the way, this organism can work without them. And that's damn hard to do because priorities are changing. You, you're trying to change the boat as you're building it and it just, you know, and you're trying to run it and it just doesn't work like that. But if you don't do that, you're never able to get beyond that. Um, you have to be able to maintain and create group unity. And that means not everyone, most people are not going to like what you say and that's okay but you have to spread the love and give something to everybody as you're going along so that you're not always going after your favorites. And you have to be super impactful in one-on-ones, not just your formal one-on-ones, but any interaction where you happen to see somebody else because the currency of leadership is transitive trust. And you don't get that trust when you only see individuals once a year in a town hall. That's a single or a couple of times a year, once a quarter, you know, that's, 
that's four data points where they're making judgments about you. You're missing the opportunities. It's using the moments in the elevator, the moments in the cafeteria, whatever you can find to create connection with somebody. Because then they're like, have more data points of working with you and interacting with you. And they could say, oh, they're not really a jerk. What they really mean is this. I really trust them and I want to follow them. And so if you can, you know, if you can create a motivating purpose and have something that people want to follow that it's inspiring, that you can create a system that enables them to act and they can get on with what they need to get on with rather than the distractions. If you are maintaining group unity rather than the polarized world that we have right now and you're impactful in your one-on-ones with them, then they're going to follow you. The, the, the real nub of fabulous leadership is uh, followership. So when you walk out the door, who's following you? Oh, I love that. The real nub of leadership is followership. And building that trust and connection. And as far as I know, and I've ever experienced that trust and connection comes through vulnerability and courage and sharing and abundance consciousness. And so many of the things that we've... And authenticity. So many of the pieces that we've touched on today. So I'm assuming that comes up in conversations. It does. It does. As, As we go through these frameworks you know, big shifts start to happen as they realize that mostly they're operating as a superstar performer. You know, they're focused on tasks and execution. Managers focusing on results and getting things done through others. Executives are focused on outcomes. So you can get all the right results and the numbers, but if your organization's falling apart, is that the outcome you want? Um, and teams and if are you're teams. falling apart, right? And if you're so falling we, apart. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk yeah. about that for a second? Because, you yeah. know, I mean, when I talk about, you know, I've been waving the flag on this rebel leaders manifesto and really bringing more humanity back to corporate culture and to our leadership and bringing more of ourselves to our leadership. So many of the things that, that you've embodied and that you teach in the world, um, I I just I I I I don't know. I believe that there's a different way of of doing th- yeah. this. There's a different way of doing this. How do you guys talk about that? No, there really is. And it all kind of comes through these frameworks, but they have to understand the mental model again of the shifts that happen because otherwise there's no frame of reference with, with which they can calibrate to say, oh, I'm really still operating as a manager, or I'm actually really still operating as a superstar performer. I now see the success habits and the behavioral shifts and the mindset shifts. And actually I'm still there. And is that where I want to be? And usually it's not because they want the money and the title and the responsibility. So that becomes a point where they now start to crack open and be like, okay, now we can talk about vulnerability and authenticity and all these other things. But without it, it's it's more intellectual. You know, they can understand Mm. it. It sounds good, but there's nothing to anchor to. It's like, okay, I think I'm doing it. I think I'm vulnerable. You know, I think I'm great. But it's but still it's, all in the head and not still, in the soul. Exactly, exactly. Whereas they need to have gone through that. Oh shit! I'm still a really a superstar performer with a fancy title <gasps> and some people around me, which is where a lot of people are. Okay, I can see why that's a problem, you know. And that's the point when they're starting to feel the circle of stuck that they're in, and now they're willing to think about the daily drugs and what they're doing to numb, or they're thinking about, okay, how do I get out of this? Now they want help. You know, it's it's a very it's a very different way of going about it. So and it's you're really- opening eyes to the circle of suck. How do you define the circle of suck? I love that. <laughs> I wrote it down when you said it earlier. What what does that what does that really mean? When I'm in the circle of suck, what am I experiencing? Well, you know, you're in it when there's all sorts of discomfort that you're going through. So it could be as you go from superstar performer to an awesome manager, and you just can't get people to do things 
in a way that feels good. You feel like you have to micromanage them and drive them really, really hard and they're resisting and you got all that drama. You're like, okay, I'm in that circle of suck. Or if you're going from manager to executive, now you've got teams of teams and you're trying to get outcomes and they're not pointing in the right direction and you're doing everything you can. And there's just all this disengagement and dysfunction. And um, and it's our own circle of suck where we've got the, you know, the daily drugs and whatever else we're using to numb because we're in our circle of suck where we're not living our full self as you described. We're only showing a certain part of ourself. The other part is hidden. Organizations have their circle of suck as they go from startup to scaling to striving to thriving. Each one of those you have to go through a circle of suck because you need more process yeah. and system and different ways of operating. So I think it's a beautiful phrase that that um, that really describes a lot of what we have to go through and we can be in it for years, can never get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it landed, it landed with me and I'm, I'm entirely sure it will land with many in this community as well. So what is a couple of things I want to talk about before we go, but I have to ask you this. So when we think about when we're stuck in the circle of suck, what is a mindset shift that you can offer us right now that would just start to help us take one step out of that quicksand? Okay. It's not going to be, it's going to be simple, but not easy. Um, I'll put I like that as a caveat. <laughs> So if we are these divine beings having and using a human experience for our growth and development, do you want to experience this again as you move on to the next life? How many times do you want to keep this repeating pattern? Ah, so ask ourselves that question. How many times do I want to keep living this? Which you've asked yeah. me about my rebel before. So yeah. this, I love that this medicine is coming back to me in this moment <laughs> and that we're sharing it. We're sharing it with the community. How many times do we want to be repeating this or view this as our opportunity to say, this ends here. This pattern ends here. I am choosing to do this differently this time around. And oftentimes that's like generational. It can stop exactly. with us, right? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love it's hard, that. It's harder to do it that way because your ego is like, it's in your head again. Because if you go into the, do I really want to keep having this pattern for the rest of this life and any other lifetimes we have to come back and heal this? Probably not. You know, that can go a bit deeper. Like, am I, am I really prepared to do the, the shitty work that it's going to take for me to beat this ego down and take the baby steps to change. Yeah. And 95% of people don't change. You know, they want the, the status quo is what's desired as sucky as it might be for someone because anything that feels like change challenges the ego and the ego wants to keep the status quo and keep us safe. You know, it's, yeah. its intention is good, but it's so bloody destructive doesn't help us. We don't need it. Yeah. Well, I think it's such a fascinating time for us to be having this conversation because here we are as, you know, uh, you know, a, a global culture emerging or trying to emerge from a global pandemic. It is changing many things in the corporate world as we knew, right? It is. It has been described as the great resignation, the great awakening. We are, you know, we're in the midst of a burnout crisis, a mental health crisis. The list goes on and on. It's so clear to me that this is a pivotal moment. Like this is a catalyst moment for change. What are, what are you seeing 
doing in terms of why this work is so incredibly important and what do you hope it looks like on the other side of COVID? Yeah, I'm probably not as optimistic as you, even as the chief happiness officer. You know, it's a little bit like the the social injustice disruption that happened last year, you know, that we experienced in a big way. Yes, we shifted forward a little bit. You know, there was a little bit more focus on DEI in organizations and a little bit more emphasis on it. But it's very, very hard to see a quick ROI from anything that's systemic in terms of its nature. Yeah. So this has definitely caused a, a, a little bit of a, a tremor, um, no question about it. But is it going to give us what we really, really want in terms of a shift? I don't think so. You know, I think a few organizations will have a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more openness. On the downside, that's going to create other issues. I'm helping a lot of organizations who are trying to move to this hybrid model, this remote model, and it's got its downsides too. It's it's. Life's much easier when everyone's in front of you and you can see them and you've got that human connectivity yeah. as much as you got the drama. The other side has a huge amount of challenge to it. Um, so I am super excited about it, but it's, uh, you know, it's hundreds of years as opposed to we're going to see something marvelous. It's just another little blip in our experience. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I think I would, I would call that a measured response. Right. And it feels to me like, you know, if you continue, I want you to say what you're rebelling for, because I think it's a beautiful summary of so many of the things we've talked about and more leaders and organizations choosing to do this work will help us forward in my mind. Right. But it is a commitment. And like you said, it's hard freaking work. And it's, it's not easy, it's vulnerable, and it's the only thing that's going to move us forward. So wh- how, would you, how would you describe what you're rebelling for? I'm doing this different. I'm asking you toward the end before we really <laughs> quickly talk about sabbatical. But how would you describe that? Because it feels so beautifully like, you know, knitting together a lot of what you've shared with us. Yeah, I, I'm rebelling for... Um organizations where people truly thrive you know they've got they've got everything set up in such a way that people just love coming to work and I've got the recipe to do that from all the HR process and ways of doing things that make people happy or not happy to the manager behaviors to the leader behaviors to the system of the organization as it goes from startup to scaling to striving to thriving and I'm rebelling for organizations learning that and consciously going through that journey as opposed to tripping over themselves, trying to do the best they can be. And then they end up with values on the wall that people walk in and go, that's not what this organization's about because it mirrors the behaviors of the leaders. And so I'm rebelling for that. And with that um, is the leadership focus on who they really are as these divine beings and creating an environment for other divine beings be productive and happy. Mm, That's so powerful. And I love that you said the consciousness of the leader because a phrase that I've been obsessed with recently is this idea that the consciousness of a leader is the consciousness of an organization. Oh, absolutely. No question. Yeah. And that's really, it's the foundation. 
And yeah. so that is the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Help us all understand and to show up in that way. And you're, and I, I watch you model it in your own life. And I want to end just quickly talking about your courageous choice to live sabbatical. And I get goosebumps when I talk about it because I remember when you first came to me and you're like, Shelly, I forever thought that I couldn't quote unquote, let my clients down and really give myself and my husband this time off to reboot and recover and rejuvenate and all the things that you've been wanting to do. And I've now watched you do it twice can you talk a little bit about your two mini sabbatical experiences as a way to bring us home? Yeah. Yeah. So last year uh, during COVID, I, I thought, what am I waiting for? You know, I've talked about taking a chunk of time out for a very long time. Luckily, having worked in the UK most of my adult career before moving to LA, we had long vacations because Europe is great like that. Yeah. But you know, three weeks would be a long vacation. I hadn't gone beyond that. Which is unheard of in the U.S. Which is unheard which of in the U.S. is another thing that we want, a cycle and pattern we want to break. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. And I've, I've never had a gap year, which most kids from, not most, but a lot of kids from the U.K. or South Africa, Australia, New Zealand do. And it's such a life-giving experience, experiencing other cultures and seeing what really goes on. So I always had this at the back of my mind. And when the pandemic hit, I was like, what am I waiting for? This world is so topsy-turvy right now. Let's just go. And I... If not now, then when? Exactly. It's what I say all the time. Exactly. Yes. And I um, wanted to be safe. So I also had this desire to try an Airstream. Um, never did that before. So we rented a Cadillac, we rented an Airstream, and we took off on a six-week adventure. And Jim had always wanted to go to Glacier National Park and Yellowstone. Um, having lived and grown up in New York, our adventures usually are much more um, Europe-bound, given my family and, and different things, which we're so blessed, but we've never really been able to go to those exotic parks here in the, the U.S. We've done all the ones close to us yeah. uh, in L.A., so Yosemite, all the ones in Utah, but not up there in Montana. So I was like, well, if we're going to go, um, it's going to take us a hell of a long time to drive up there. It's so far away, this huge-ass country, and um, come back, and why, why rush? And we want time there to really enjoy. So as we started to really plot it out, it's like, we need six weeks. <laughs> and um, then I was like, okay, but I don't want to be staying in KOA campsites and all of this. I had this preconceived notion of the whole RV experience and what I imagined these, these experiences were like. I don't know where I had it from. But it seemed kind of tacky to me. So I was like, okay, well, how do I solve for that? And so it turns out that these great opportunities out there, hip camp and harvest hosts, where you literally are staying on somebody's farm or they signed up to this membership where you're staying on wineries and you, you parked at airport museums, um, you're staying on distilleries, uh, sheep farms. Um, and we just had this absolutely magical experience. And I told my clients I'd, I'd be back in six weeks and um, Bips covered whatever needed to be covered for me. And I knew that it was going to be okay. And what really happened was I thought it would take me a few weeks. Jim had a bet that I'd be back in two weeks. It's like, you can't not work for, you, you love what you do. Um, and for me, it wasn't really about recovery it, it, uh, or any of that because I don't feel like I'm ever working. For me, it was more, I wanted to experience just being. Like, could I just be and, and not have a doing? <laughs> 
Yes. And um, the RV experience for me was a perfect combination because we do a lot of sailing with our friends in Europe. We're always meeting up in all sorts of exotic places around the world. And that started from when we were in London and needed to get out for the sunshine because the UK is such shitty weather. It uh, has a similar feel with every day you're like, okay, what port are we going into and how are we going to set up for the night and the getting there and the sails? And this is the same thing. It's like, which farm are we going to? Detaching the airstream and then setting up. And so there's a lot of like day-to-day in the moment stuff that has to happen that keeps you busy, but it's not in the future. It's not intellectual. It's just very livable. And I found it addictive. And because I knew I was going for six weeks, Instantly, I relaxed. It wasn't that I stopped thinking about them. I probably thought about them for two or three weeks, and then my clients, that is, and then thought of them a little less as time went on. But it was just this like I had no desire to call my friends. I had no desire to jump on any coaching calls um, for my own development. I just was out in nature. Being present, a human being, not a human doing. A human being. And so this year, we never got to see the other part of the adventure was the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. But the West Coast uh, fires had smoked all the way over to Wyoming, so we couldn't see it. So this year, we're like, okay, we're doing that again. And so we rented um, an RV this time from outdoorsy because they have much better insurance and they, they're legit they set up in a way to protect us which we needed the last time and didn't really have so um we did that this time and it was did more of a motorhome and it was just gorgeous you know slide out bed queen size bed shower the air conditioning the fridge and, and and you know what it is what I really love about it I thought about it this time is the common humanity so the first night we get to an RV park in uh, Utah, outside Capitol Reef. And we got there at 9 p.m. And a young guy checked us in and we're like, oh, where do we go for, to eat? We haven't got any provisions yet. And he said, well, it's closed. You know, you're in Torrey, Utah, there's 100 people, the restaurants are closed. So we're like, oh, okay. All right. And he's like, well, why don't you come and join us? And his parents owned the RV park and he was back for the summer. And um, They'd made, they'd taken tinfoil with ground beef and mushrooms and potatoes and zucchinis and Campbell's mushroom soup, cooked it over the fire. And we went down and joined him and his buddies and ate whatever they'd made. And it was so scrummy. And I don't know if it was scrummy because, you know, it's cooked over a fire. They cooked it with love. Our option was trail mix. But we had, you know, we had all those sorts of adventures. And in the Grand Tetons, we had these group campsites because there were no individual campsites available. So we had space for 50 people in the trees, absolutely gorgeous setting. And um, we are there having our lunch at a picnic table and a car drives up and they're like, is this your campsite? Mm-hmm. Is this space? We're looking around. Uh-huh. Could we stay? We don't have accommodation booked here for the next couple of nights. We're going to be in Yellowstone and then we're good. So they move in, um, the Korean family with their teenagers, and they're making us seaweed pancakes and whatnot that evening. And we're having a good old time with them. And then the next night, a Mexican couple walked in from Arizona and they're like, Is this your campsite? Do you have space? Yeah. Can we stay? Okay. <laughs> and then they were these huge travelers who never book accommodation because they don't like to be held down and they just wing it and figure it out. And they were giving us these amazing mangoes and papayas from the farms outside Scottsdale. He worked with International Food Bank. They're telling us where to go in Big Sky, Montana. And it's, 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 
it's very um it's very grounding because I was in Florida the week after I got back and I'm in the, the Ritz Carlton and Key Biscayne and it's gorgeous beautiful hotel gorgeous setting you know I'm having all the luxuries and my comforts and I'm like I want to be in an RV yeah this feels so impersonal whereas that to me is the perfect combination of absolute luxury when we'd be in these RV parks, I'd Google the different fifth wheels we're seeing, which are the ones attached to the back of the yeah. track. And you're like, oh my God, they've got a kitchen island. They've got reclining chairs. They've got, I mean, you've got luxury like right there. And I'm like, I get this. I totally get this because you're in nature, you hiking, you kayaking, you're doing all the beautiful things, but you've got comforts, but you're all together as well, but you don't have to interact and you can. And, and it's people who are just, the most grounded and homely and um, absolutely wonderful. Everybody helping everybody. So I love it. I'm, a, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm addicted. Well, and I never, when I met you two and a half years ago, never ever would have thought I would be on the receiving end of a story like this. And these experiences, <laughs> I would have always put you in a Ritz-Carlton and Key Biscayne or something like that. And I love this because one of my biggest lessons from Solbatical was simply slowing down, putting my feet back in the earth, spending time in nature, deeply connecting with myself and other humans. All of these things that you're so beautifully describing and that you've experienced. And also what I loved is I remember you were terrified to tell your clients that you were taking six weeks off. Oh, and everyone was like, they were just like, okay, have an amazing time. Send pictures. We'll see you in October or whatever it was when you get back. And we build these stories up in our heads and we tell ourselves the million reasons why we can't do these things that light our soul on fire, that yeah. bring us home to ourselves, that nourish our connection to this beautiful planet. And yet we can we can find a way to do these things and we can do the scary thing too, right? To tell people what we want and what we're going to create in our lives. And that is, I, I am so grateful to have you as yet another soulbatical story because you're living it. I mean, this entire conversation that I'm so sorry that we have to bring to an end because I, you know, I love talking to you. You and I can spend hours and days you have reminded all of us that truly to live soulbatical is be, you know, living a life that's more authentic, more courageous, more purposeful. You're rebelling for the impact you want to have in the world. You're slowing down, nourishing yourself. It's so beautiful and it's going to look different for you versus me, versus anybody who's listening to this conversation. It is ours to create. It is. Although my clients this time, we went for two weeks. We're like, oh, thank God you're only going for two weeks. It wasn't as great without you. <laughs> We're not as good without you. So that was kind of flattering, you know, to the ego, yeah. but also... And yeah. also, if you had said you were going for another six weeks, you wouldn't have gotten the resistance. Yeah, I wouldn't have. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, I had originally wanted to do three months in South America um, because that was our goal of moving to LA was to have more access to South America. But, you know, when things get safer, we'll get a chance to do that. Just not yet. We'll just keep it safe. Yeah. Well, the great thing is you can keep doing this. 
yeah, and recreating exactly. it in whatever, you know, in whatever way you want to every year. Well, thank you for being, for, you know, living sabbatical, for being a rebel soul and showing us that it has lots of different shapes and forms and flavors and can beautifully bridge business and spirituality and all of the things that you represent and that we can all be our own chief happiness officer as well. It starts from the inside out. And I really appreciate you sharing your journey because you've done a lot of work, sister. And I'm 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 following your lead. I'm wearing the colors. I am a <laughs> spicy. Mm, thank you. I am a spicy autumn yeah, you look uh, to your my spring. Thank you. And so for anybody who has noticed, and we'll put Jennifer Butler's information in the show notes, as I said, but you guys have probably witnessed me no longer wearing black. Yeah, I do show up in a Harley t-shirt every now and again because it's fun and it makes me smile and it's rebellious. But as I was saying to Vicky earlier, like 85, 90 plus percent of the time, I'm really owning my hair color, my skin color, my eye color. I want to be seen in this world on this mission to liberate a billion souls. And honestly, Vicky, you're one of the people who's kept me honest on this journey and I'm forever grateful. Thank you. It's been a joy. For people who have now fallen in love with you and want to learn more about your work in the world, where can they find you? So they can go to thinkshift.com, T-H-I-N-Q-S-H-I-F-T. So it's a little play on words there about shifting thinking. Um, And we also have our Be Fabulous podcast, um, which is with me and Vips, my, my business partner. And it's the yin to the yang. Um, and we go through a lot of the, the, the non-negotiables of what you have to start with in terms of the DNA to even know if you're going to make it to being a fabulous leader. And then the four Ds of leadership. And, um, and this, this year we're tackling um, the, what's, going to, what's going to stick and what's going to not stick as we come out of the pandemic and we think about 2025. Ooh, can you give us a teaser? What's the number one thing you thing you think will stick coming out of this? I think the number thing, one thing that'll stick is people are going to be much more cautious about whether their working environment really works for them. They may still have to do what it takes and be wherever they need to be, but they're going to be a lot more cautious and reflective about whether it's really serving them. Do they want to do the long commutes? Do they want to be in the office? Whatever combination that they're experiencing. I think that's never going to change. I think we've seen a big shift in that. Yeah, I I know for a fact that many of our rebel souls are in that right now. I mean, this is this is becoming a big awakening for many people who are now really in touch with what matters most. So thanks for more inspo on that front. So check Vicky out and I hope we get to continue this conversation in the future. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for inviting me. So what a much. treat. Yeah, yes. you, my dear. You, you look unbelievable today. Thank you. Rebel Souls, I hope you've loved this conversation as much as I have. Until next week, stay bold, brave, and badass. Ciao. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow Rebel Souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylbatical.com and follow me at sylbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, 
brave and badass and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?